This is increment 120 of We See Jesus, a series begun on the homily, the heavenly homily called Hebrews over a year ago. We'll be going today to Hebrews 4.16 to consider Tothrano, T-O, T-H, R, O, N, Omega, O. Let's try that again. Tothrano, Tase, Caritas, one of my favorite words. Tothrono tes caritas, caritas, the throne of grace. And that's our focus and our subject, our topic, our theme, our motif, whatever you want to call it. Everything that we do today on increment 120 will be sort of hovering around that phrase, to throno tes caritas, from Hebrews 4.16. So, Father, I pray that you'll continue to give us a spirit of wonder so that we may continue to inquire in your holy temple and receive insights, test those insights with reflection, deliberate upon what we reflect upon and act upon our deliberations as you act and will in us, according to your grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. We ask these things and entrust our spirit to you for the purpose of receiving mercy and finding grace to help in time of need. In Jesus' name, amen. The gist of our confession is Jesus, the Son of God. This is what makes a community cohere. The confession is what coheres the community on a practical level. This central truth is elaborated in Hebrews 1.1 through 2.16, as we've seen, citing from Psalms like 2.7 and Psalm 110.1, the Septuagint being 109.1. Jesus' identity as the unique divine and human Son of God is upheld throughout the discourse. This confession presupposes the title and identity of Jesus as the Christ, Ho Christos, the Messiah. To those who were expecting him before his first appearance, the coming one, as he was called. The Christ means the Savior, not just of Israel, but of the world. To those that expected him, it was presupposed that he would not only be the Messiah of Israel, but the Savior of the world when he comes. This was the understanding of the Samaritans who heard Jesus for themselves and concluded rightly who he was. They said this is the Christ, the Savior of the world, in John 4.42. When we think of holding fast the confession, which is what this whole discourse 
urges us to do. When we think of holding fast the confession of Jesus as the Son of God, we must bear this in mind, that he is the Savior of the world. 1 John 4.14 says something similar in connection with his expiational work or his propitiation for our sins that we may live through him all the way back in 410 and following. We confess or we acknowledge Jesus, the Son of God, as the Christ, the Savior of the world. As the Savior of the world, he is the expiation or the putting away of, the taking away of the sins not only of Israel, not only of Christians, not only of a limited category of lucky people called the elect. No, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. That's all of humanity over all of time. The confession itself that we hold fast is that of an all-saving Savior. Are we really holding fast the confession if we are acknowledging a Savior who only saves some? Are we confessing the one who is appropriately called the great shepherd of the sheep? In Hebrews 13.20, if we're confessing one who leaves the one and saves the 99? Or are we confessing one who leaves the 99 to save the one so that the whole flock is intact in salvific solidarity? You know the answer to that question. Speaking of solidarity, it's a term that runs throughout Hebrews in very significant ways in a significant silver vein throughout all of Hebrews. One of the great motifs of Hebrews is the salvific solidarity of all of humanity without regard to environmental advantages or disadvantages, without regard to ethnicity, class, caste, gender, personal preferences or orientations, race, political leanings, or ideological idiosyncrasies. We are, in our nation today, there is a movement to atomize, A-T-O-M-I-Z-E, our peoples, to bring a kind of a new segregation between groups of people. Because the enemies of our nation, who are working overtime at this present time, know the old saying, to divide and conquer, and that united we stand. 
Hebrews is all about a Christological solidarity of all humankind in the man Christ Jesus, in Jesus. So when we see Jesus, we see embodied in him a solidarity of humanity, a unity of all humankind. It is only the revelation of this solidarity and unity that's eventually going to break up the divisiveness in our nation, which is ruinous beyond what you could imagine, that divisiveness. Now, that's just a parenthetical comment, really. The reason that the confession that we're dealing with here in 414, as well as 3.1 and 10.23 of Hebrews, the reason that the confession is also called the boast of our hope in Hebrews 3.6 is because the expectation linked to our confession is the eschatological salvation into Christological solidarity of all of humanity. God sent his only eternally begotten son into the world not so that he could condemn the world through his son, but in order to save the world through him. John 3.17 This is the first divine mission. And the mission was accomplished. The second divine mission is that of the divine sending or commission of the divine person called the Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, into the world, into the world, to convince the world <clears throat> of sin, to evoke faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. The mission of the Holy Spirit, ongoing even now as I speak, like the first mission of the Son, is a universal mission. God will pour his Spirit upon all flesh, evoking faith. Joel 2.28, coupled with Ephesians 4.13, 2 Corinthians 4.13, John 16, 7-11, Revelation 5, 5 and 6, and other places are verses that come to mind immediately. The creator of the, saint, of the entire universe is not content with being the redeemer of only part of it. Let me repeat. The creator of the entire universe is not content with being the redeemer of only part of it. The maker of mankind is not content with saving part of mankind. The potter has not resolved to remake part of the clay that failed on the wheel, but all of it. The mouth of God by which all of the prophets spoke univocally did not speak of the restoration of some things but of the restoration of all things in Acts 3.21.
The Apostle Paul didn't give definition to the mystery of God's will, as he called it, as God's intention to sum up or gather some things and some beings in the heavens and earth in Christ, but rather he spoke of the mystery of God's will as God's great intention to sum up all things and all beings in the heavens and on earth in Christ. His son, his beloved son in Ephesians 1.6, Matthew 3.17, Colossians 1.13. Titus 2.11, speaking of the grace of God that has appeared, does not say that its appearance means salvation for some people, but salvation for all of humankind. It does not say bringing salvation, as some translations say, or offering salvation, but simply salvation of all human beings. The grace of God appear, has appeared, the salvation of all human beings. Greek looks like this, S-O-T-E-R. I-O-S-P-A-S-I-N and then the word for the plural word for men or for mankind, the universal word for mankind, anthro, anthropois. Soterios, pasen, all. Human beings, anthropoi. That's what Titus 2.11 says. The grace of God has appeared. We would put it in the English, colon, salvation of all humankind. It doesn't say bringing salvation to all mankind or offering it. It simply says salvation for all mankind. Whom God calls our great God and Savior. Speaking of that word great, great shepherd, great God and Savior, great archpriest. He whom Paul calls our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in Titus 2.13, did not appear as salvation for some people, but as salvation for all people. Furthermore, the word of God says that God saved us according to his mercy, Titus 3, 5. Not when we believed or when we repented or when we confessed Jesus to be Lord or believed that God raised him from the dead, but, quote, when the benevolence and philanthropy of God our Savior appeared. When the benevolence and philanthropy of God our Savior appeared in the crucified Christ, God saved us. Titus 3, 4, and 5. So Pastor Craig Brown was correct when he said in a very recent sermon, I was saved in A.D. 30. So were you.
the unfettered beneficence and the unrestricted and passionate philanthropy of God, his unconditional love and his uncontingent grace for all of humankind made its salvific appearance when Christ appeared one time at the juncture of the ages to put away sin by the offering of himself. Hebrews 9.26. That's a verse that keeps coming into focus, keeps coming into mind, keeps being remembered and recalled as we go through this homily. And when he appears the second time, it will not be to deal with sin, but to bring the salvation that resulted from its removal, the removal of sin, the sin of the world, which he removed in his appearance the first time. Hebrews 9.26 and 9.28. So his appearance in 9.26 is related to his, the appearance of the grace of God in Titus 2.11 and the appearance of the philanthropy and kindness of God in Titus 3.4. When he appears again, the second time, it will not be to deal with sin, but to bring the salvation that resulted from the removal of the sin of the world. If he came the first time to remove the sin of the world, he comes the second time to bring salvation to that world. He will appear to those who are waiting for him, says Hebrews 9.28. But listen carefully. All creation is waiting for him. Romans 8.19 and following. And all creation is waiting for the apocalypse of the sons of God or the stunning revelation of his children in glory in resurrection. And that occurs when he appears. Romans 8, 19 to 23, coupled with Philippians 3, 20 and 21. The Bible does not bear witness to God as Savior exclusively of those who believe. But it reveals God to be the Savior of all human beings, especially of those who believe. Especially those who believe means, and this again is First Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Especially those who believe means that those who have the faith that was evoked by the Holy Spirit, faith which is the hoped-for realities already with us. Those of us who have faith already have the hoped-for realities of future world. It's in us in a kind of a seed form, we might say. For faith is the substance and essence. Remember that word again, though it's used only three times in Hebrews, it's what we would call a catchword. 
It catches a vast amount of the doctrinal essence of this homily. Again, faith is the hypostasis, H-U-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S. Hypostasis of things hoped for. Again, and I think all the way back to increment two, if I remember correctly, John Chrysostom, he was a Greek patristic theologian of the 4th and early 5th century, and I believe he was the Bishop of Constantinople. And I also believe he was martyred, if I remember correctly. I refer you to increment two. John Chrysostom, in his writings called Homilies 21.2, wrote this, Faith gives reality, hypostasis is what he translates as reality. Faith gives reality to objects of hope, which seem to be unreal, or rather does not give them reality, hypostasis again, But is their very essence, is their very essence, remember when I told you about the word pneuma, that that also has the meaning of essence in Revelation 19.10. The essence of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Well, here, faith is the very essence, hypostasis or hypostasis, of the hoped-for things. It's sort of like the kingdom of God is like a seed. The seed of future world is the faith that we have. That's why he is the savior of all, especially those who believe. Those who believe have the seed of future world in their hearts, in their minds. I can't ever disbelieve the hoped for things because they're in me in faith. Those hoped-for things are embodied in Jesus, whom we see crowned with glory and honor. And it's the honor part of that. Honor is time. In the Greek, it looks sort of like time in English, although the last word is an eta, e, eta, e, time. That honor part, with which he is crowned, is coming up in Hebrews 5.4. It's the honor of a priest, an archpriest. The glory is that primarily of a king. The honor is primarily that of an archpriest. He is our great king, great being the operative adjective today, great king. New Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Jesus is the great king like Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. He's also our great archpriest. As our great king, he's crowned with glory. As our great priest or archpriest for the age, he is crowned with honor. Nobody takes this honor to himself. We're going to see this 
comes up in 5-4 just to give you a hint of things to come. So those hoped for things are embodied in Jesus whom we see crowned with glory and honor. It's the honor part of that declaration from Hebrews 2.9, harking back to Psalm 8, that occupies the attention of the first part of Hebrews chapter 5 and on through the central section of Hebrews, which is really a series of concentric circles, and the center of the center of the center is the crucified Christ in the central section of Hebrews having to do with the great archpriest. We'll be seeing how that comes about. So before we get into an earnest depiction in Hebrews 5 of the archpriest, and before we continue our foray into chapter 5, let's think about the astounding juxtaposition of throne and grace in Hebrews 4, 6, 16. Let me read this little section again, closing off Hebrews 4. Therefore, having a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast the confession. For we do not have an archpriest who can't sympathize with and assist us in our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. There's that without sin again that pops up again in Hebrews 9.28. Therefore, it's a reasonable exhortation following upon this doctrinal exposition, let's approach with outspokenness. That's freedom of speech, only this time directed toward God. He honors freedom of speech. Therefore, let's approach with outspokenness the throne of grace so that we may take hold of mercy. And find grace for timely help. It's a very specific verse there. And a very specific exhortation following upon the exposition in 4.15. So our great archpriest, Jesus the Son of God, who is of the confession that we hold fast, He not only sympathizes and empathizes with our weakness, even suffering together with us. He's also able to assist us in our weakness. That's the point. For this reason, I would translate Hebrews 4.15 as, For we do not have an archpriest who can't sympathize with and assist us in our weaknesses. Weaknesses there is very strong. Asthaniah means to be utterly without strength. It means to be helpless. The Bible does not say God helps them who helps themselves. The Bible says Jesus Christ, Christ, the great archpriest, helps the helpless. It seems that the world is reduced to two little slogans, none of which are in the Bible, though they may, the second one may have some reference to some parts of the Bible. 
God helps them who helps themselves, not in the Bible. And God works in mysterious ways, not in the Bible. Although we could make an argument that he does work in ways that are mysterious to human beings, of course. But when your whole knowledge of the Bible is reduced to two slogans that you say are in the Bible, but they're not in the Bible, then you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. So stop pretending that you do and putting on a halo to act like a spiritual person for a few seconds to impress idiots. Because we're not idiots. Okay. So there's even less excuse for these readers and for us to let loose our confession, to let loose our grip on the confession, to fumble the ball, as it were. He's able to assist us in our weaknesses. He is one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. So again, there's even less excuse for these readers, including us, to let loose our grip on the confession of Jesus as the Son of God, because not only do we have a great arch priest who has passed through the heavens in Jesus the Son of God, we have a great archpriest who is actually standing by to assist us in our weaknesses, our helplessnesses, and to fortify us in their, our trials and temptations. And there are many in this world. And because he is able to assist them, us, the readers are urged to both hold fast to the confession that makes us cohere as a community and also to approach the throne of grace with prayerful outspokenness in order to take hold of mercy from our merciful archpriest and to find grace to help from our faithful archpriest. Paul famously learned this lesson through suffering. Second Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, he tells the story. I may paraphrase parts of that. Because of what he called a thorn in his flesh and a messenger of the adversary who was sent to repeatedly beat him up, the apostle besought the Lord three times. He prayed three times to take it away. Jesus famously answered, My grace is enough for you. For my grace is fully manifested in weakness. We could even say my grace is fully ignited in helplessness. Well, it's obvious that Paul found and appropriated that grace because he concluded that he would from then on boast in my weaknesses because when I am weak, then I'm strong. In other words, then... I'm able to have the real strength that is by the grace of Christ Jesus, to be strong in Christ Jesus. Match up 2 Corinthians 12.10 with 2 Timothy 2.1. You got something there. Elsewhere, he could say, and this is a paraphrase, I've learned to be without, 
that is, to have very little and to be abased, and to have a lot, to abound and to have a lot. Indeed, he said, I can endure all the scenarios in life through him who keeps pouring power into me. Philippians 4, 12 and 13. Now, I've recently given much thought to people who have endured trauma in life, as it's now called, and who have even endured painful and persistent abuse, sometimes prolonged abuse. I can think of examples of people who experienced prolonged abuse over the course of decades. Some people and I've observed a lot of people over the course of my 70 years in life and 40 plus years in ministry. Some people even seem to have been marked by the grief of abuse and there's really nothing wrong with that. Jesus is marked with the signs of his abuse and his abusers still in heaven with his nail-scarred hands and feet and the sign that his flesh was torn as the torn veil in his side. But some people seem to have been marked by the grief of abuse they've endured but are not defined by it. Not being defined by that which they've endured, they no longer have a spirit that is so burdened as to bring both themselves and others down the proverb writer said, a grieved spirit who can bear? That means not only does a person with the grieved spirit not bear their own burden, but neither can others around them. They don't, just don't know what to do. What do we do? We pray, but the spirit remains grieved. It seems to remain unanswered. And so... They have a spirit that's so burdened as to bring themselves and even others down. A spirit that refuses even to allow itself to have joy or even the normal simple pleasure of living. I can recall one person, no one will know who this is because it was years and years and years ago when I was a very young pastor and she would be in a group of us as believers and you'd say something maybe a little funny, and she would start to smile, but then almost you could see in her countenance that she forced herself not to go all the way and smile. She wasn't allowing herself. There was something grieved in her, broken in her, from some past event probably, that did not allow her to express or experience pleasure or joy, or fun. I still think of that countenance. I still think of the moment when I saw that happen in her countenance, in her face. And I pray that she's been relieved of it since. I haven't, I haven't seen this particular person for many, many, really decades now. But the countenance of such a person stays with you for the rest of your life. And so sometimes we're frustrated as trying to be the helpers of other people's joy. 
There are others who have endured similar abuses and traumas, sometimes even to a far greater degree and for a far longer duration, who seem to have been, well, let's say they seem to have been lifted above that trauma and that abuse and live beyond it. So there are some who continue to suffer from an unhealed wound and live their lives as if determined and defined by what they have endured. But there are others who seem to have not only been lifted beyond that trauma and past that abuse, though marked by it, not defined by it, not only not defined by it, but they seem to have a joy and a joie joie de vivre, a joy for living that even exceeds those who have cracked the spiritual maturity barrier. The difference in some cases, at least, that I've observed, and this isn't in every case, but the difference I've observed, is that those who are marked by former abuse and trauma and injustice, but not defined by it, have come to somehow appropriate mercy for themselves and they found grace for forgiveness of their abusers and grace for the elevation above the sorrow of their former traumas and hard times. These recipients of mercy, these finders of grace, usually have a joyous spirit beyond many Christians who may have truly, as I said, cracked the maturity barrier. My prayer for the traumatized and those who have endured injustice, and I do, I think I want to end with this because I want to end with a prayerful note. My prayer to God is that my latter part of my life will be given to prayer. I've spent a lot of time with the freedom of speech and speaking to others, hopefully for God. I hope I have time to speak to God for others in an effective and unceasing way in my latter years. That's my prayer. And I hope, well, you can pray that with me, for me, if you want to pray. And I know that the only way to pray for others and really find grace and mercy for them, to grab a hold of mercy for them and find grace for them, is if I pray believing and pray with a deep and abiding faith. And that's my heart's desire. But it's asking something from God that only he can do. So my prayer for the traumatized... And for those who have endured injustice and abuse, sometimes indescribable abuse, is that they will be encouraged to approach the throne of grace and to take hold of the mercy that assuages the misery and find the grace that elevates them above the livingness that is defined by their former misery. None of us can transcend ourselves. 
In fact, we're helpless to do so. But the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ can cause us to transcend our own selves, our own previous traumatic experiences, and in the process, to be healed. And so, Father, I close today with a prayer to you, our healer, that you would do this for so many. And there are people who are praying with me now who are listening to this message who have particular people in mind. And we join in their petitions for those particular people. And we thank you for this opportunity, Father, for the word of God to become magnificently meaningful in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and give you thanks as we anticipate answers from you that go beyond what we could ask or think. Amen.